But it is the Christmas season, and it is right and fitting that we would um, be people of celebration or, or expectation. And um, it's good that we uh, kind of start this season with a grand opening. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to one of those Christmas stories, Matthew chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and one of our hosts will gladly provide a Bible for you. If you're visiting with us and don't have a Bible, take that. That's a gift from us to you. We hope you read it. And, uh, and, and, and follow the Lord of it. Uh, you can find Matthew chapter 1 on page 807, 807 in those Bibles. And I, at, while you're going there, because, so stick a finger in 807, but also turn to Colossians chapter 1, page 983. Colossians chapter 1, which is page 983 in those Bibles. We'll get to those, both of those passages shortly. But I love the Christmas season. I'm here for all of the music. So earlier, at least in the first service, Danny joked about those of us who sing Christmas songs a little bit earlier than the rest of you. Uh, join the party. Join the celebration along with me. Uh, but I'm here for all the music. I'm here for the movies, the lights, the food, the festivities. I love a live tree. I love decorations in the house. And I just love everything about what we get to enjoy in the season. Sarah does such a good job decorating our home that I've often have told her that the Christmas season is my favorite season of our house. And many other people celebrate Christmas as well. No surprise to you. But around the world, some 2 billion people celebrate Christmas. 2 billion people. And then in the United States, a 2019 Gallup poll discovered that 93%, 93% of Americans celebrate Christmas. And that includes many people with zero religious affiliation. So people who would not claim to follow Jesus, people who would have nothing to do with the Bible, people who have no desire for a religious holiday still celebrate Christmas. And even people who advocate for a secular Christmas, yes, you can find those people, even people who advocate for a secular Christmas still celebrate the holiday, but uh, trying to celebrate a secular Christmas really is impossible because of the name itself, Christ must. The question, though, is what makes Christmas so significant? Why do we celebrate it really in the first place? Well, you might answer, well, of course, that was the, the date, time, or season when Jesus was born. But that asks or begs a follow-up question as well. What makes that so significant? Why does Jesus get his own holiday? Now, you might know the four gospel accounts, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that talk about the life, death, and resurrection ministry of Jesus uh, the Christ. And you just turn to Matthew, the first gospel, and I want to read that birth account that we see in Matthew chapter 1. Follow along with me, starting in verse 18. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I want us to focus real quickly on verse 23, which is a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where the prophet says that this child's name should be Emmanuel. And that Emmanuel, the name means God with us. So this child who is coming into the world will bring the presence of God among his people, but not just the presence of God. He will bring God to his people. Those of us familiar with the story, those of us familiar with that name can often go so quickly by that God with us. But we need to ask ourselves again, what does that mean? Why is that significant? How is that even possible? And the question becomes even more complex when we go to Colossians 1 and we read these theological statements of that son, of Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him or in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So now think about what we read in Matthew chapter 1, Emmanuel, God with us. Now think about this in Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Which means we should ask the question again, what does that mean? What does that entail? What does it mean that God dwells with his people in Jesus? And that in Jesus, in this babe, that all the fullness of God dwells bodily. When we think about just even the nature of the question about who God is, we, we need to ask ourselves, who is God? What is, who is his identity? What is he, and then what is he like? What's his character? And we see this. In the person of Jesus. And in our December series here, as we lead up to Christmas, we're going to be going through the attributes of God. And we'll be seeking to understand who God is in his attributes. And as we think about the attributes of God, it leads us to, to see the Son of God as the fullest representation, the fullest understanding, the fullest picture of who God is in his attributes. And we'll see those completely displayed in the person of Jesus. Because this is the miracle of Christmas. Now, theologians have often organized the attributes of God into two primary categories. The first category, which we'll focus primarily on today, are the incommunicable attributes of God. Incommunicable. I know you're all surprised I can say that. But the incommunicable attributes of God are the attributes that he does not share with us. These are the attributes that make him God. These are the attributes that set him apart from us. So what makes him distinct from his creation? Communicable attributes, on the other hand, that's the other category. Communicable attributes are the attributes that he shares with us. We're all familiar in the last several years about communicable diseases, Things that go back and forth between people. Well, communicable attributes are attributes that God shares with his people. These are relational attributes. Attributes like love, grace, even a holiness that he shares with his people. 
But today, we're going to focus primarily on the incommunicable attributes, the attributes that make him God, that set him apart. And if you're following on your worship program, you'll look at the back of that and go, that's a lot. And it is. And part of the design of this sermon, as we think about the incommunicable or transcendent attributes of God, is to overwhelm us with who God is. To overwhelm us with who God is so that, so that we might worship him for who he is. The main idea on your worship program today is that God is the supreme being who is worthy of worship. God is the supreme being who is worthy of worship. Now, it's important for us to qualify that these attributes of God are true of all three persons of the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity is equally, fully, and truly God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And they share these attributes completely, exhaustively. They have all of these things. There's not one member of the Trinity who is more God or has more of this attribute than the, than the other. All members of the Trinity share in this. And yet in Jesus, in the incarnation, as the eternal Son of God takes on human flesh, we see God revealed in a unique, distinct way like never before in the Bible and never before in history. So when we think about God and his attributes, we need to, we, we need to have like two wings of a plane. On one wing is God's transcendence, God's otherness, that he is set apart. He is wholly different than us. In one level, we can say that he is incomprehensible, not that he is impossible to understand at all, but he is, it is impossible to exhaust knowledge of him. On the other side of the plane, though, the other wing is that God is knowable. In that, he makes himself known to his people. And he does that primarily through his creation, through his scripture, but more than anything, through his eternal son who takes on human flesh in the incarnation. So our series today, our, our sermon today, will focus primarily again on four incommunicable attributes as we think about God's transcendence. What is it that actually makes him God? The title of the sermon is The Godness of God. And we're going to talk about the Godness of God today. But then we'll also see how God makes himself known in sending his eternal son to reveal who he truly and fully is. And our final concluding point will be how all of that knowledge leads us to worship. Just by way of warning, by signaling where we're going on the bus here, the first point is going to be very long. The second point, relatively short. The third point is our concluding point. So if you're trying to keep track of how much time we're spending, we'll get there eventually to lunch. But in any case, to be overwhelmed, number one, with God's transcendence. God is transcendent. God's transcendence is his otherness. He is so great, again, that he is incomprehensible. Again, not meaning that he cannot be understood at all, but he cannot be exhausted. Knowledge of him it, it can, can, will never stop learning about God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25 says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Isaiah 46, verse 5, To whom then will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Isaiah says, who are you going to compare God to to make him like somebody else? And the answer is, no one. For there is no one that we can compare God to. Matthew Barrett is a theologian. In his book on the attributes of God, he is titled, None Greater. That's an excellent way to capture who God is in his attributes. 
As as we look at these four uh, um, descriptions or attributes of God's transcendence, we'll be overwhelmed with who he is. Our minds at one level will be blown. We'll be maybe lost in thought or glazed over of how can that be true. But that's the point, to be overwhelmed by the transcendence of who God is. As we look at these four statements of God's transcendence, I've added a therefore so that it might lead us to hope. It might lead us to trust. It might lead us to security. As we think about the Christmas season, we think about what we're all searching for. We're searching for joy, happiness, security, relationship, or any number of things. And brothers and sisters, whatever you're looking for, in an ultimate sense, whatever you're ultimately looking for, you can find that in the transcendent God. But not only can you find that in the transcendent God, you can only find that in the transcendent God. For there is no other being, there is no other thing that compares to him. So God's transcendence, where we will then find the hope, the joy, security of our hearts. Number one, God is independent, therefore he is self-existent and we depend on him. God is independent, therefore he is self-existent and we depend on him. In Exodus chapter 3, we see a familiar story of Moses with the burning bush. And uh, throughout this chapter, uh, we find out that God has, it knows the, the heartache, the, the, the bondage of his people in Egypt, and he's sending Moses to redeem them, to bring them out. And in this back and forth, this conversation between Moses and God, Moses says this in Exodus 3, verse 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am. The majesty and the wonder of that statement is probably lost on us. But but for God to respond, what is your name? For him to say, I am. This statement is one of the mountaintop statements, mountaintop moments of the Bible. This is a statement of God's independence or his self-existence. He exists of himself. He is not dependent on anything for his existence. 10th century theologian Bernard of Clairvaux said it this way. If you had, if you have said of God that he is good, great, blessed, wise, or any other such quality, it is summed up in a single word. He is. You know, sometimes we talk about God as if he is needy or dependent on us, that he's bored. There are some really unfortunate lyrics of Chris. Christian songs that often can lead us to think that God is needing us or needing to do something to express his love. But Matthew Barrett, theologian, says it helpfully this way. He says, God is not a needy God. It's not as if he is, was bored, twiddling his thumbs, desperately lonely prior to creating the world. God is not dependent on the world for his existence, nor is he dependent on the world for his happiness and self-fulfillment. Instead, he possesses life in and of, him, of himself. More precisely, he is the fullness of life in and of himself. 
God is self-existent. He comes from no one. No thing created him. He is not dependent on anything or anyone for his being. He is independent. And his name reveals that. If somebody were to ask me my name, I would say, I am Zach Hess. For me to respond in that way reveals two things. One, that somebody named me. And secondly, that I came from someone. I'm told that my parents named me on their way to the hospital. They decided to spell Zach with just a C, not an H or a K, ever frustrating many people who talk to me. And uh, they wanted me to be a little bit different, which I think you all have seen that they've succeeded in that. But somebody had to name me. And then secondly, my last name, Hess, reveals that I am of the Hesses. I have a family of origin. I have a history. I have people that I've come from, many of whom that I don't even know. But I am not, depend, or I am not uh, independent of myself. I have been named and I come from a family of origin. But when God says... What is your name? He doesn't give a first and last name as if someone had named him or he came from anybody. He simply says, I am. God is independent of himself. He exists of himself. John chapter 5 verse 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. God does not come from anything on the outside. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. He is self-existent and independent. Therefore, because he is independent, he is dependable. He is dependable. He is the ultimate anchor since he does not depend on anything else for his existence. He is the one that we depend on for our life and our being. And since God does not rely on anyone or anything from outside himself, he is therefore the supreme being of the universe. The apostle Paul in the book of Acts quotes one of the poets of that day who wrote, in him we live and move and have our being. Brothers and sisters, nothing in the world happens apart from the self-existent God. He is the energy. He is, he, he is the person. He is the God, the supreme God of all things by which everything else happens. His self-existence, his independence is where we get his sovereignty and providence. The fact that he is self-existent means that he is in control of all things. That in his providential plan, he carries all things out because he simply is. And because he is, we can depend on him. Do you believe that God is powerful enough to intervene in your circumstances? Do you believe that God is dependable enough in that he exists in and of himself to know the closest things to your heart? Do you believe that because God is independent, that he is worthy of your praise? God is independent, therefore we can depend on him. Secondly, God is unchangeable, therefore we can trust him. God is unchangeable, therefore we can trust him. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. James 1 verse 17, For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's unchangeableness or his immutability, as theologians would say, means that he does not change in three ways. First, he doesn't change in his essence. He does not change in his essence. God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
He does not change in terms of who he is. He is always and always will be the Trinity. God does not change in his perfections or his perfections. He is always loving, good, holy, and sovereign. He is always all of his attributes. Finally, he does not change according to his decrees or promises. God will carry out his plan and all of his promises will be fulfilled. God does not switch courses or make mistakes. He does not revoke his promises. We do not have to be guessing of whether or not what God promised will actually come to pass because he does not change. Now, because God does not change does not mean that God does not feel or relate to his people in a relational way. We saw last week how God has regret, but not regret in the same way that human beings have regret. His regret is completely different than us because it's a divine grief. It's an emotional relationship that he has with his people. And yet still, all of his plans actually work out. All of his plans come to fruition for he does not change. Dutch theologian Herman Bovink writes it this way. He says, if God were not immutable, if he could change, then he would not be God. The doctrine of God's immutability is highly significant for religion. The difference between the creator and the creature hinges on the contrast of being and becoming. Essentially, one of the features that makes God unique is that he cannot change. And if he could change, he could therefore not be God. See, human beings are changing all the time, aren't we? Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. And yet still we're changing, but God does not change. And therefore, brothers and sisters, because God does not change, we can trust him. We can trust him. Psalm 102 verse 25 says this, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. God does not change. Brothers and sisters, are you nervous at all about what could happen to the next generation? Are you nervous at all about the world that you'll pass through eventually and think about the legacy of those who come after you and think, man, I'm not sure what's going to happen to them. I'm not sure what the future of the church will be or of God's people on this earth. There's challenges all the way around us. There's things that I didn't face when I was in school and the things that children these days are facing. What will happen? How will the church remain? Brothers and sisters, you have no reason to be afraid for the next generation because God does not change. Do you see what the text says here? That though his servants shall dwell secure, their offspring shall be established before you. Why? Because God himself is an unchanging God. If God could change, then we would have every reason to be afraid about what could come to the next generation. If God could change, we would have no hope or security of what we could face. But brothers and sisters, we can encourage our children The next generation, we can encourage all of us to engage with the mission of the church, with the mission that God has given us to make disciples of all nations because God himself does not change. How glorious it is to trust in an unchanging God who will see all of his promises fulfilled, who will not revoke, take anything away that he's promised in his word, but will complete those in his time. See, we humans, as we change all the time, we're sometimes not exactly sure who we're going to face 
when they wake up. Some of you know what it's like to walk on eggshells with a person in your life. A boss that would fly off the handle. A spouse whose mood could change like the wind. And you're walking on eggshells was always in a way of like, I don't want to upset them. I want to mess with the, the vibe that's going on right now. But friend, you do not have to walk on eggshells with God. Because God does not change. So we can trust him. Thirdly, God is eternal, therefore we are secure. God is eternal, therefore we are secure. Psalm chapter 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had... Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God is immortal. He is not bound by time and space because he has no beginning and he has no end. Friend, have you ever got lost in pondering what was eternity past like? What was God doing before creation? We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But the concept of eternity, that God has no beginning and he has no end. In fact, the first verse of the Bible asserts God's eternal nature. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God God was there before creation. He was there. He has never had a time where he didn't exist. He has no beginning and therefore he has no end. Revelation 22 verse 13 says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God is eternal. When God and Job are going back and forth in their discussions or God had finally heard enough of Job's frustrations. Uh, God said to Job in Job 38 verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what has its basis sunk? Or, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the suns shouted for joy, where were you? And the answer for us is we weren't there, but God was because God is eternal. He created time and space. He stands above time and space. He is the, uh, the authority over all things because he has no beginning and no end. Therefore, he is infinite. See, as human beings, we're bound by limitations of this world we're bound by the limitations of time we can feel frustrated by those limitations we can look at the world around us and kind of and wonder about what the future might hold we see global conflict local chaos maybe the maybe even the the frustration of our own mortal bodies that are bound by time that are aging but God's eternality keeps finite creatures like us secure. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is eternal. 
And friends, because God is eternal, we can trust him with our future. The final point under God's transcendence is that God is unified, therefore he is consistent. God is unified, therefore he is consistent. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we see one of the great prayers of Scripture, the great Shema, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, as Christians, we understand that God's oneness is compatible with his eternal existence as a trinity. The three persons of the trinity are eternal persons. So when we say God is unified, we are saying that God is simple in his essence. And when we say simple, where you assert divine simplicity, as theologians would say, we're not saying that God is easy to understand. What we're saying is that God is not composed of parts. You know, many of you who in this uh, colder, wintry time, maybe like to make some soups. And some of you might have like a secret ingredient that goes with the soup. So you're just kind of adding a little bit of this, adding a little bit of that. And you have a secret ingredient that you don't tell anybody. But if you keep that secret ingredient out, well, then it's no longer your soup. Doesn't taste the same. God is not ingredients that go in where if you're missing one thing, you take out God. God is all of himself all of the time. Greg Allison writes it this way. He says that God, he is not composed of parts with his characteristics like holiness, love, and power being ingredients of which he is made. Additionally, God is not a divine nature to which are added the perfections of knowledge, eternity, and justice. Rather, God is his nature and he is his Attributes. God is all of himself all of the time, which is why we can say, or the Bible says, that God is love. God is holy. God is just. He is not like a series of levels that fluctuate. So sometimes he's acting with love. Sometimes he's acting with justice. He is always acting with all of his attributes all the time because God is his attributes. He is not the sum total of a number of Parts. So God is not partly love. He is not partly just. He is not partly holy. He is all of himself all of the time. Wayne Grudem says it this way about God's consistency. We should never think, for example, that God is a loving God at one point in history and a just or wrathful God at another point in history. He is the same always and everything he says or does is fully consistent with his attributes. You know, for some of us, our spouses or coworkers or friends might be saying, you don't seem like yourself today. Grab a Snickers. <laughs> God is always himself. He's never not himself. And he is always all of himself. For God is unified. So that's scratching the surface at describing the transcendent God and his attributes. And at one level, kind of hope, and I imagine most of us feel like our mind is blown a little bit. And how does all of that relate? How does this transcend? When we think about the transcendence of God, we can often feel as if he is so other that there is no knowing him. And that is true, friends, if we were left to our own devices. But what is so glorious about this God, this transcendent God, who is love, who is just, who is holy, who is so other than, but this transcendent God makes himself known by sending his one and only son to reveal himself. By sending his one and only son to reveal the full characteristics, who is full of all of these attributes, the transcendent God makes himself known. And this is the miracle of the incarnation. This is the miracle of Christmas. That God makes himself known in sending his eternal son. 
John chapter 1, verse 1 asserts the eternality of this divine son. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So this divine son, the second person of the Trinity, who possesses all of the attributes of God that we've just talked about, along with the Father and along with the Spirit, this divine son, who is self-existent, unchangeable, unified, and eternal, takes on human flesh so that we might know God. The Nicene Creed says that he is God from God, light from light, God of God, true God of true God. The miracle of Christmas is that the eternal son, God, would take on human flesh. Going on in John chapter 1 verse 14 which says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The transcendent God makes himself known through the eternal Son of God. And this amazing miracle of Christmas is that the Son of God would remain true God of true God and also take on a true human flesh and now is the God-man. So when Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 58, when he's asked of his name or he's asked of, where did you originate from? Who are your parents? The Pharisees asked him. Where's your family of origin? What's your name? He can say before Abraham was, I am. Because he is the true God. But this true God who takes on human flesh in the incarnation, it's more than just about showing us the character of God. He shows us the character of God and he also accomplishes God's plan. So when we look at the ministry and the life of Jesus, we see all the attributes of God on complete display. When we look to Jesus in his ministry, we're seeing this is God in the flesh. This is what God looks like. God with skin on, as some have said. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, for or then in, in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. So when we look to Jesus, we behold God in the flesh. We see God's character on complete display. But not only do we see God's character on complete display, we see that God's mission is to be accomplished. His plan is accomplished through this God man as well. Look at verse 19 in Colossians 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus was sent as the God man, not simply to reveal the character of God, but also to accomplish the divine plan. He came on a mission to reconcile people, to make peace through the blood of his cross. See, we're familiar with what it means to have enmity or separation between human beings or nations. We see nations at war all around us. We see relationships severed, that there's enmity between individuals. And we look at those bridges and we don't know what would it look like to reconcile those relationships? What would it look like to reconcile those nations? 
But in a far greater sense, the enmity between nations pales in comparison to the enmity between the transcendent God and sinful creatures, sinful human beings. But the divine Son takes on human flesh to reconcile all things, to make peace by the blood of His cross. The God-man comes not just to live a life, but to live a life, to, to, to display all the divine attributes, but then also to die the death that human beings deserve so that all who would respond in faith and repentance are now reconciled to that God because of what the divine Son has accomplished for us. Matthew Barrett says it this way, sin against an infinite God cannot be atoned for by a Savior who has emptied himself of his divine attributes. No, it is his divine attributes that qualify him to make atonement in the first place. Sin against an infinite God can be met only by a Savior who is himself deity and all the perfections identical with that deity in infinite measure. See, the transcendent God who is completely set apart, makes himself known and accomplishes his own plan and purpose to reconcile human beings, sinful human beings, to himself. You may have come in here and thought, you know, Christmas is a pretty big deal. It's a bigger deal than what we could even begin to imagine. The transcendent God makes himself known by living the life we were meant for, but then by dying the death that we deserve. You might think, now, what are we supposed to do with that? Maybe you're here as a skeptic, and you think God cannot be known completely, therefore God cannot be known at all. And your lack of understanding leads you to doubt, leads you to leave Christianity altogether. You can't put all these things in your mind, so therefore you, it's led you to some form of agnosticism. But friends, have you ever thought that your lack of understanding shouldn't lead you to doubt God, to lose trust in Him, but simply to worship Him? To think that while He has not given us everything, He has not revealed everything, but He's made Himself known enough? That when we look at the Gospels and we look at the life, death, and resurrection, we say, there's enough there that I can trust that God. When we think about His attributes, of His, His divine nature of who He is, that He's powerful enough to follow, that it makes sense enough to follow this God. And I pray that in this season, we would all have the demeanor of the wise men who didn't come seeking understanding. They came to Jesus seeking to worship Him. Matthew chapter 2 says it this way. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going from house to house, they saw that the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Friends, and all that you're seeking for this Christmas, will you get a glimpse that God himself is the supreme being who is worthy of all of our worship? Will you see the greatness of God revealed in Christ, the, the God-man made flesh who has dwelt among us, who is God with us, that we may know God, see God, behold him, and worship him for all of his transcendence and attributes, but that he also made himself known that we might see and behold him and that he would accomplish his plan of redemption for us on his own 
and that we get to respond in faith and repentance with all of our lives to worship him as the one and only supreme being. Let us truly worship and adore. Let's pray. God, we have but scratched the surface of your glory. For what no eye has seen or no ear has heard and no heart can fully know. God, you are majesty of majesty, wonder of wonders, glory of glory. And all of who you are, you have made yourself known to us by sending your eternally begotten Son to reveal yourself, to make yourself known so that we might have right relationship with you, so that we might rightly worship you. And Lord, I pray that we would be overwhelmed with who you are so that we might worship you for all that you are. We pray that we would be people of trust, love, graciousness, and abiding affection in the God who is. For it's in Jesus' name, amen.